talking to me. So, how do we start? Hi, this is Aga and Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design. And much more. There are people who influence you on levels you would never imagine. For me, this kind of person is Joe Pine, our guest today, whose concept of experience economy stuck with me as soon as I heard of it and keeps on inspiring a lot of my work and a lot of my thinking. We are lucky to have Joe again with us today. And actually last year, it was the 20th anniversary of the experience economy, which is, wow, which is a lot of time. I'm super happy to have you, Joe, with us today again. Thank you, Aga. That's, uh, that's quite a testimony uh, <laughs> that you gave there. I appreciate you letting me know that. Joe, like I mentioned before we started recording, this season is about innovation. And I was wondering, if you were to define what innovation means to you, what would it be? Oh, well, innovation is when a company or a person comes out with something new that actually becomes used in the company terms becomes an economic offering. You know, we can have inventions that we have a phrase in the U.S. that never see the light of day. You know, we have inventions that somebody comes up with something, but nobody ever uses it and never becomes anything. Those aren't innovations. Innovations have to truly be used out in the world. And obviously, they're new, they're different than anything ha that has uh, come before, mm -hmm. whether in, in a small way or, or a large way. Mm -hmm. There is a bit of a frenzy of innovation in business these days because companies have harder and harder time to stand out to differentiate themselves because there's like more and more companies more and more brands and in a way it feels that these companies keep on doing the same which in terms of your model is doing goods and services so where is the space for innovation for companies today well what you described is the essence of commoditization In every one of my books, there's basically a hero and then there's a antagonist. And the antagonist of the experience economy is commoditization, right? If you do nothing, you will be commoditized because you're basically the same as everybody else. So you do stop innovating or you slow down your innovations or your innovations may bring you up for a little bit, but they're quickly copied. They never turn or, and they're not major enough to make a real difference. You know, that's when commoditization sinks in and people just buy you off of price. So, and of course, the hero of the experience economy is staging experiences. That's where we need to innovate. We have shifted into an experience economy where goods and services are no longer enough, where goods and services are becoming mere commodities. And so companies need to innovate in experiences. It doesn't mean that innovation in goods and services will go away. We will continually have those. Some of them will be very major. Some of them will make huge differences in our lives. But the majority of innovation, the majority of money and time that corporations spend on it needs to be at the experience level because that's simply what customers desire. Why is it so scary for companies to do it? Like they keep on working on goods and services, but they are not working on experiences. Well, it's not that it's scary. It's not scary enough. <laughs> it is, is that they aren't scared enough in recognizing the level of commoditization that they're coming to. Uh, and they need to be more scared. They need to, to have that proverbial burning platform underneath them to force them to change. Because what happens is that we all get trapped in our mindset, in a mindset that has you know, made us a success, that has gotten us to where we are. And that mindset tends to govern things. And it tends to go unchallenged. It tends to be in the background. We don't even know what it is. And so we don't even see the possibility of experience it. If we see a competitor or another company doing it, we sort of denigrate it, we poo-poo it, we would say. You know, treat it as something that really isn't going to make a difference in the future because we don't have the worldview that says that, hey, this is where the world of business is going. You remind me of an example of that. I was in Milan, Italy, quite a number of years ago now. It's probably 15 years ago and doing a boardroom presentation with a number of different executives. And one of them was the vice president of Maxwell House in Europe, right? Maxwell House is a coffee manufacturer. And he said something that amazed me. He said, you know, there's been no innovation in the coffee industry in 15 years. 
Wow. And I said, are you kidding me? Have you never heard of Starbucks? Because <laughs> <laughs> for him, innovation was in goods, right? That's the mindset that he had. It's like they had blinders on. We're a manufacturer. Therefore, we innovate in goods and totally missing the innovation in the coffee drinking experience that Howard Schultz created at Starbucks. And the irony, of course, was it was Milan, Italy, that actually inspired Howard Schultz to be able to, you know, he saw the, the coffee culture that was there and he brought it back to the U.S. and now created experience places, right? Places where people can go in and uh, enjoy the cup of coffee that they have, spend time in the place, view that as time well spent. And, you know, the rest is history, you know, in terms of, of a company that has gone from, you know, zero to 31,000 stores in 30 years. Yeah. Actually, this is an interesting thing because what I keep on noticing with a lot of clients that I talk to about experience design is that often they are so focused on the core product that they don't realize that the space for innovation is in the peripheries, that the experiences, sometimes they don't even have to touch the core of their business. But if you surround your core business, which still can be a good or a service with experiences, people are drawn to it. I mean, that's exactly right. You can think of it in two ways is that for some companies, the experience is the core product, right? You think about Disney, Disney, the experience is the core product. And then on the periphery are the services, parking services, food services, photographic services. And then on the periphery past that are all the goods, the merchandise that they sell, Mickey Mouse hats, Mickey Mouse watches, and so forth. So for them, it's the experience that's the core, and then you work out to the periphery of goods and services. But they all fit together, right? which is a great model, is that you use all of them to sell each other. And with other companies, as you're saying, where if you are a goods manufacturer, if you are a service provider, then yes, that's the core in the center of your company. But then look towards that periphery and surround what you do today with experiences. And that's why you see manufacturers the world over that have gotten into the experience business as a way of generating demand for their core offerings. You know, you have the world of Coca-Cola in Atlanta. You have the Heineken experience in Amsterdam. You have the Guinness Storehouse in Dublin. You have Volkswagen's Autostadt in Germany, Swarovski's Kristallwelten in Tyrol, Austria. And on and on and on, the list could go of all these companies that have added experiences to periphery and then use them to generate demand for the core goods or even, and there, there are service companies that do that as well. And, you know, perhaps the company that, well, not perhaps, the company that has been the most successful of that is, in fact, Apple. Mm -hmm. You know, Apple was always a goods manufacturer. It was designer. Uh, they eventually got into services with iTunes. But I can still remember when Steve Jobs announced that, that he was going into retail in 2001. And he got lambasted in the business press because they said, you know, you're, you don't know what you're doing. You're a manufacturer. You're going to make your channel partners mad. You're going to not know how to talk directly to customers. You're going to fail at this. And he proved them wrong by creating not just an Apple store, but an Apple store experience, an experience where every product in there is live, where they have workshops that you can learn about and where they have the geniuses and so forth. And today, Apple is the number one retailer in the world in sales per square foot by often an order of magnitude. It, obviously, it's predicated on great products still, right? Because the products are at the core, as you say. And if you don't have great products, well, then the great experience isn't going to matter as much. In fact, you know, there's an old saying in advertising that great advertising makes a bad product fail faster. <laughs> well, a great experience will make that product fail even faster than that. You, know, you got to have both. But if you have great products and great experiences like Apple does, well, that's when magic can happen. I think that also your other favorite example is Umka Bank which we don't have in Europe, but uh, you mentioned it before and I keep on reading about them and I'm super impressed in ways how they think of building experiences around banking services, which is probably the most boring service right. in the world. <laughs> well, in the US, I don't know how it is in Poland, but in the US, banking is probably the industry that most commoditized itself because they came to view spending time with customers as costing them money. And so they don't want to spend time with customers. They push them out of the branches to use ATMs. And then they push them out of the branches to do internet banking. And so lo and behold, people don't want to spend any time with banks or with bankers. And so Umqua Bank, uh, based in Portland, Oregon in the U.S., 
decided to do that differently. And interesting, they first started with services, right? So the other services. So they say, basically said, come here and we'll be your post office. We'll be your dry cleaner. We'll do these other things for you. You can drop off your dry cleaning and your mail and so forth. And then they got into experiences and very simple uh, is they added a cafe. You know, and I often said the easiest way to get in the experience business is to add a cafe <laughs> because it automatically engages all five senses. And it gets customers to want to spend time there. And that's what they did. And then they went from their banks having cafes to then uh, having local uh, bands that play there, become community centers, and, and so forth. And it's all based on the notion that we want customers to value the time that they spend with us. Yeah, that's really impressive. I keep on telling the Umpka Bank example to some of my customers from financial services, they are always impressed and as scared <laughs> of the concept <laughs> right, as you can right. imagine. <laughs> Do you get this, Aga, that often when I talk with companies, though, you talk about being scared, you know, that when they see it, but there's other companies that I've worked with where they come up with a great idea, right? A, a really great experience innovation. And then they present it to the CEO or the CMO, whoever it is. And the first thing they ask is, okay, who's done this before? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? Oh, yeah, Because absolutely. it's too scary for them. And I'm like, if you somebody's done it before, then it's not an innovation. It's not an innovation to add a cafe into your business anymore. That's been done over and over again. It still may be the right thing to do, but it's not innovation. Innovation, we need to think about something new that we can do. When we started talking, you mentioned that companies do improvements that are only one step ahead of the competition. Or they copy and alter a little bit the stuff that the competition right, does. Yes. And this this is exactly what uh, relates to what you just said, that there is this fear of the unknown that's so prevalent that whether it is an experience or any other kind of innovation, these companies are absolutely freaked out. And I'm wondering... Why is it so? Is it because we are in the economy where short-term gains are so important that basically they dictate how executives work and think? Or is there another reason for it? Well, I think that that's certainly part of it because they know particularly if something requires a big investment, then it's going to get noticed. And if it fails, then it's a huge hit to the bottom line in that. But a lot of it is simple risk aversion. Mm -hmm. It's sticking your head out. Uh, it's being responsible and accountable for something that you then have to make sure. And the thing with innovation is you're never sure. If right, if you're sure, it's not innovative <laughs> because you know it can be done. If it's innovative, if you're really not sure this is going to work out, and though so that gets scary, particularly if you feel like your job is on the line, or your reputation's on the line, or you've got all these resources that you're committing to it. So I think that's a lot of the reason as well that people sort of hold back from those big bets that they make. I'm always laughing when I'm talking to my clients that if they don't have a cold chill running down their spine, they are not doing right. anything innovative. <laughs> right. <laughs> because like, you have to it. be scared a little bit. Yes, <laughs> right? yes. But on the other hand, I wouldn't basically forget that what Joe said, you need to get your product right. Remember in Poland, we have this idea bank. Mm -hmm. They had an idea similar to Umka Bank, but they went for co-working. And I assume the product was actually not that good because that failed. And I think they closed most of those co-working spaces. So they took a step forward, really did something innovative, at least for the Polish market, but there was not enough to back it up, basically. Yeah, that's true. So whenever I talk to some of my clients trying new stuff, I'm saying, okay, like if you don't back it up all the way through, and give it space and time for testing and for trying out whether it works or not, it's just not worth your money. That is a mistake that companies sometimes make is that they go too fast too quickly, mm -hmm. that they do too much and don't prototype, don't test, don't figure out the right model. You know, I always tell clients that whatever budget you have, you need to save at least 20% of it for after you come out with the experience. Because you never know how human beings are going to react, and you always have to change it. You know, even Disney is sort of famous for not getting it right the first time. They're currently, it's uh, Galaxy's Edge, a new Star Wars hotel that people are saying, you know, it's not as good as it's supposed to be. It's not working all that. But let me tell you, you just give them a little time. They'll put more money into it, and they will make it a resounding success. So this is another myth that goes around about innovation, is that 
you have to have a success right away. Right. You know, talking about iPod or iPhone. Okay, iPhone was a, a resounding success <laughs> from the start, but iPod, it actually took three or four years before it became yep. the success, you know, right. the instant success. And somehow I kind of think that companies only believe that they did something innovative if they hear it from others. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that you need to have this feedback loop for knowing that you did something innovative. And that's also a little bit of a vicious circle because it means that they are not trusting enough, I don't know, their people, their expertise, their talent to believe that this will be something new. There is the old saying that a prophet is without honor in his own country, you know, said of Jesus originally. And that is often the case. If somebody inside tells you that, you know, you discount it, but you need to hear it from the outside. Mm -hmm. But of course, when it comes to innovation, the number one constituency you need to hear from is your customers themselves. You know, do people actually buy the offering? Do they enjoy the experience? That's the only way you're going to know in the end if it works. Does it make sense to apply the same thinking to the experience of working inside the company, basically to your own employees? You mean to create an employee experience? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, it's funny. I've been thinking more and more about that the last year or two. And, and people like you, Lukash, bring it up more and more that, that you do need to create a great employee experience to give them the wherewithal to create a great experience for your customers. And, and it goes across all facets of the employee experience. And today's environment, you know, in the U.S., we're at historically low unemployment rates. And there's, you know, there's basically two reasons to join a company is because you like the amount of money that they're paying or you're getting something out of the job beyond the money, whether that's that psychic enjoyment, whether that is sometimes it's physical fitness, sometimes it's because you're helping somebody else. But in the end, it's about the experience that you're having working for them. Uh, and it's a key element to be able to attract the right people you want uh, in your business. It actually seems that along with experience economy, there is a huge cultural change when it comes to work environment. So going away from this industrial approach of command and control and going more into mentoring, trusting environments and uh, with, with empowerment. Yep. Do you see this happening or is it still just on the slides, on presentations? No, you know, one of the things you see now is a, a revolt against the cubicle farms where people are all in their own little square little space and some companies see keep squeezing it down more and more and more and trying to, to squeeze all life out of it. And people are realizing that's not the way that human beings should be living. It's like chickens in cages and so forth. That really doesn't work. So that, you know, that's one aspect of against it. But there's also a larger thing uh, going against command and control. And, and you might want to have on my uh, friend Kim Korn sometime. Kim and I have been working uh, for a few years on ideas, you know, mostly his ideas I'm just helping him with, he's brilliant, but on how companies need to thrive forever. What keeps companies from falling into mediocrity and eventually failing? And we call it uh, regenerative managing, right? How do you manage your company in a way that regenerates the organization, regenerates the offerings, regenerates the people, regenerates the entire company, and specifically get rid of all of the bad effects from command and control where you just tell people what to do, right? And instead, you need to unleash your employees and give them the freedom to do, the freedom to innovate. I mean, in, at its core, you cannot regenerate unless you innovate. You have to innovate. You know, bottom line, that's it. And you have to innovate at a faster rate than your ecosystem. If, and you're one company against all these others, but if all the others are innovating in total faster than you are, greater than you are, going farther than you are, well, guess what? Eventually, you'll succumb to that and you will fail. So you have to innovate as much as everybody else. So you say that companies need to innovate, but on the other hand, there is a price attached to it because Again, the other phenomenon that we both see with Wukash is that in a frenzy of innovation, these companies forget that they actually have some basis that they should keep healthy. So they keep on adding new stuff on the top of something that was working previously quite well. And suddenly these things are not working that well anymore. So there is right. a little bit of thinking that we have to add more without thinking that maybe sometimes we should take things out. Right. 
Well, you know, one thing it relates, again, right back to regenerative managing, because one of the things at core of innovation is you need to have exploration and exploitation. So exploration is what you're talking about, coming up with new things that you're adding continually to it. But exploitation is taking that core and incrementally improving it as well. If you let that atrophy, then the amount of innovation you do on that, you often will not compensate for a core that is getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and and it eventually dies, and then everything falls down as as part of it. But what more often, it's interesting, what more often happens is that exploitation wins the battle, that people, and back to what we said about the risk and, and people not wanting to get out there, is it sort of starves the resources of exploration, and that, you don't do enough of that. And that's probably the majority problem, but like you said, it can happen either way. So one of the things that Kim always talks about is that you need orchestration. So orchestration is how do you balance exploration and exploitation? How do you take advantage of both of these? So you're doing the right things for the entire corporation, for the entire set of innovation that you do. That's how to think about it, is that orchestration foster balances and, and enhances that exploration and exploitation together. Mm-hmm. Makes and sense. integrates them together. You mentioned Kim. I wanted to ask you about another person who I know that you know. It's Tom Peters. And okay. his concept of under-promise and over-deliver. Because this mm-hmm. is something that, for me, very much connects to experience design, but also to innovation. Often what happens is that companies over-promise, and therefore they can only match the expectations that they build in their right. customers. But if you underpromise, like Steve Jobs was doing often, right? Suddenly you have the space for, first of all, failing a little bit. So, you know, you underpromise. So if there are mistakes, right. you are not paying right. the consequences of it. But on the other hand, it leaves the space for all and for surprise for customers. How do you see that in experience design? Yeah, I think it's like so obvious. Of course, you underpromise and overdeliver, you know, because the opposite is going to get you into big problems. And even if you're deliver exactly what you promise, yeah, that does apply to experiences as well. It's one of the things that, again, to go back to the Disney example, because you're Disney, it's hard to underpromise because people's expectations are so high. So I'll give you well another Dixie. I, next week at this event I'm doing, I'm going to get to meet uh, Ed Catmull who's the head of Pixar. My wife and I go to Pixar movies on opening weekend without any kids. It's like, I don't care. They're just such <laughs> great movies. You know, True. I think the Incredible one of the best movies of all time of any kind and the Toy Story movies anyway. And it became known that they always had a hit. They always had great ones. And it's very hard to live up to that because now you expect that greatness. And sometimes, yeah, even though your expectations are so high, they did in fact still over deliver and you know have a great movie the one part of them i think that is not at the same level as all the others is all the cars franchises mm-hmm. uh, and that even the initial cars movie wasn't as good as the others but outside of that you know they continue to do it and that's in the in, you know the right place to be and you can have those expectations relative to experiences just as you can uh, services and goods the thing is that in this frenzy of getting a little bit of market share companies they put it all out there They tell you how amazing it's going to be and right, what's right. going to happen. And suddenly when you come, it's not that magical anymore. It's worse than you read the small print. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, yeah okay, that's, <laughs> that's absolutely yeah. terrible. But the thing is, like, somehow this culture of over-promising is so prevailing. Uh, I'm curious, did you see how to build the under-promising, over-delivering culture into a company? Because that's super tricky, isn't it? Honestly, I don't see it as, as much of a problem as you do. Okay. Maybe it's with the clients that I work with or what I see, but obviously I know it can be a problem. One of the things I like to say or to think about is don't promise at all. <laughs> you can't over-promise if you don't promise. Hmm. And it relates back to the book that my partner Jim Gilmore and I wrote, follow-up to the original experience economy on authenticity, mm-hmm. where we noticed that all the times that companies were proclaiming their authenticity, they're talking about how authentic they are in their ads, in their taglines, you know, on posters in the place and that. And proclaiming authenticity is always an overpromise because nobody, no company, no person is ever 100% authentic. 
And any time that you get a disconnect, a little little fallback on what they say about themselves and what you actually experience, well, that's going to get them branded as phony. So, you know, we have these axioms of authenticity where we say basically that uh, if you are authentic, you don't have to say you're authentic. People know that. Right? People, right. People know it. They'll find it out. Because if you say you're authentic, well, then you better be authentic because <laughs> you put a bullseye on your back that people are going to be looking for. And it's the same with any promise. If you do any promise out there, you've got a bullseye on your back where people are going to actually look for, particularly, I mean, if it's at least a big promise and saying you're authentic is a big promise, but there are other big promises that people look for anything that doesn't follow that and then play the game of gotcha and say, aha, gotcha, I knew it. Uh, you know, it's not true. So it's better not to promise at all. It's one of the reasons why we say don't advertise. Hmm. The best thing you can do is don't advertise. It's obviously, it's a little bit of hyperbole. There are still good reasons to advertise, particularly when you have a new product going into a new geographic area, new product positioning. But the better way to think about it is let your experience be the marketing. Mm -hmm. That the experience that you create, let it generate demand for your offering. Let it be how people experience you as directly in your experience rather than in what you say about it. You know, that we talked about bank cafes and that. The first one, actually, I'll take that back. There was one I know of in Asia, but the first big one that came out was ING cafes in the U.S. from the Dutch bank, ING. The cafes, when you just sort of come across them, you don't even realize it's a bank because people in the U.S. had never heard of ING Bank. They didn't know what it was. And so they often call it ING. You know, oh, look, it's the ING Cafe. <laughs> and... They go in and then they figure out, hey, they get a great cup of coffee and it's a bank. You know, what is that? That's a disconnect. So if they had said you know, either, hey, we're a bank or that they'd be, you know, over promising for what they're doing. It's better to just be right. Don't promise, just be. A lot of companies say that even if you deliver a great experience, but you don't advertise, people only a small number of people will find out about it. So that's the problem for them. That's why they go into advertising. Yeah, but in advertisers, they just can't help it over promise, right? It's in their DNA to say, this is the biggest, this is the best, this is the brightest, and so on and so forth. So once you get into that game, you're going to have that difficulty. If you do some understated advertising, of course, that's okay. And again, if nobody knows about you, you may need to get the word out. But ideally, it's word of mouth that works. The people to experience it and they tell people and they want to come back and the people they tell, tell other people and they tell other people and so on and so forth. I mean, that's ideally what you want. And also recognize too that when you create a great experience, if you have a, most experiences this way, not all, but at least physically, if you have a big bill, you think about the Heineken experience, right? In Amsterdam, I don't know if you've ever been there. But it's basically a big billboard because it's this old factory with the Heineken experience and, and lights above it. The Guinness Storehouse has this gravity bar, a big circular bar. They're just adding a second one now. I actually got to visit there at the end of November last year. And you can see it from all over Dublin. You see, hey, there's the Guinness Storehouse. There's that gravity bar. I want to go experience it. So the experience also is it's like a billboard in that way as well. I had a discussion with a person we both know, Paul Boulancea, mm -hmm. about experiences. And Paul said something that started troubling me a little bit because he said that if we keep on delivering experiences, people get addicted to them and they want mm -hmm. more of them. What's the problem? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so, no. Well, so the, the short answer is no, that's not really a problem, I don't think. Mm -hmm. It can be with certain kinds of experiences, you know, the most addictive experiences. You can think of gaming, obviously, you know, gambling, going to casinos can be very addictive in that. But the bottom line is we can't help but experience because mm -hmm. we're human beings, right? It's in our DNA to experience. We want to experience. But in fact, time is limited. We only have 24 hours a day, seven days a week to experience things. You know, we got to fit sleep and work in there sometime. So if it's outside of sleep and it's outside of work, then, hey, let's experience all we want. Obviously, there's many different kinds of experiences. So the only real problem is if the experience we have, we become addicted where they start to harm the sleep or the work or our family relationships that we have and so forth and our friend relationships. That's the only time it really becomes a problem. And obviously, it can. But it is self-limiting. There's a governor there because we don't 
have enough time to experience everything that we want. I mean, if, if you get addicted to video games and you're playing Fortnite, you're getting two hours of sleep and then you can't do your work, well, then, yeah, that's the problem. But uh, if it's a true you know, addiction in that way, but most people, it's a self-regulating mechanism because there's only so much time in the day. This is something that you also recently talk quite some about, which is that in this world we are competing for attention and for time and for money of people. Could you tell a little bit more? Well, it's in fact, you know, you mentioned that last year was the 20th anniversary of the experience economy, but we came out with uh, re-releasing the experience economy in hardcover. In there, we have a new preview, and it is based off the new subtitle, as you say, competing for customer time, attention, and money. That's what the experience economy happens, is that we're competing for time, attention, and money. Time is the currency of experiences, is what people are spending more than money, is their time in the experience. And, and attention is something that we have to capture in order to get people to spend time in those experiences. And at the end, ideally, you'd like them to give you your money for the experience itself, as well as, again, for those core products those goods that we may be selling at the core of the experience, like the Guinness storehouse generating so many new pints of Guinness beer that it's sold every year because people experience it there first. So I, I think already it does directly what we just talked about because time is limited. We don't have enough time to experience everything, but if somebody captures my time and the experience I'm creating for them, what am I not doing is I'm not spending that time with any other business, right? They are losing out. They're competing for that time. If somebody captures my attention because they've created this wonderfully immersive experience where I'm spending my time, then what am I not doing is I'm not giving that attention to any other company. And if I have a dollar or a euro to spend and I spend it with some other company in some other industry in some other geographic area, then what can't I do with that money again is I can't spend it with any other company. It's gone. It's consumed. That's why you need to think about the experiences that you create. And you need to think about how do we create experiences that do, in fact, get people to spend their time with us, that captivates them with their attention, and then gets them to spend their money as a result. And that's how we look at you know, all the frameworks of the book in terms of that context. And, and uh, the preview does set up that time, attention, money with some new ideas, some new frameworks, and even a few new exemplars in it. Sounds awesome. That brings me to another question, because you said like this is the 20th anniversary of the experience economy. Could you walk down the memory lane with us and tell us how it developed? There's obviously a huge change <laughs> by now. So I'm just curious how people were reacting to it when you started talking about it and how did it change over time? A couple of things come to mind. The first thing is that when we first started talking about the experience economy, and this was in the mid-1990s, you know, with the Harvard Business Review article came out in 1998. We actually wrote before that an editorial piece in the Wall Street Journal in 1996. And the first academic piece was in strategy and leadership in 97. But everybody noticed the Harvard Business Review, and then the book came out in 1999. And back then, Jim and I used to have to argue with people that this is happening. You know, that we'd have to, here's the statistics, here's showing why, and here, and actually, in the, you get to Q&A, you would have to go back and forth and argue with people. And a lot of people didn't like it, right? They didn't like the fact that this would be an experience of kind. They were still thinking about uh, farmers and about manufacturers and how they're losing jobs. And yeah, they are losing jobs, but th that's going to happen sort of anyway. But this is where new jobs are being created. But they said, but these jobs are so good, and the heritage of them and so forth. So there was a lot of arguing going on, let me put it that way. And today, hardly ever have to argue with anybody. You know, just say it and people say, oh, I get it. Why? Because they see it because it's all around them. People have called us futurists or called us prescient for figuring this out so long ago. But I said, no, in the 1990s, you, if once you know it, you see it, you'll see it all around you. But today it's so clear, it's so blatant that you can't ignore it that we're in an experienced economy. You know, so that's probably one of the biggest things. And then another thing I'll point out is when we did first come out with it also, the first two or three, four years after the book came out, one of the biggest compliments that we got and the one that I sort of enjoyed the most and actually loved hearing, and I heard it over and over again, was people saying essentially, thank you for giving me a vocabulary to describe what it is I do for a living. Mm -hmm. I, you know, that there are all these people that were in experience staging 
all these people that help companies stage experiences, but they didn't know what to call it. <laughs> and so we gave them this vocabulary. And it's funny, but the last couple of years, I've been getting that comment again and again, you know, like in between, not at all. And I don't, I don't know why that is, but all of a sudden people are saying again about thank you for giving me words that I can use. I can tell my mother what I do for a living now. Now she gets it. <laughs> <laughs> vocabulary is super important, isn't it? Yes, it is. I've always thought vocabulary is so important. It's like when we have a new concept, one of the first things we do is we actually get out of thesaurus and a dictionary, start exploring it. We did that with authenticity. I have this spreadsheet of all of the words that imply authenticity or inauthenticity. And one of the interesting things is that there are very few words that say inauthenticity without having that in in front of it, without having a negation of a positive word. You know, there's some fake and phony, right, or examples. Mm -hmm. And so those are words. But most words are inauthentic, disingenuous, like that. And it helped lead to some of the concepts in the book by recognizing that, because that's how most philosophers also define authenticity. What they do is they define inauthenticity, and then they say, don't do that or don't be that. Very few of them actually define what authenticity is. So it's a, sort of this interesting uh, contrast in there. But it is important to know exactly what the words are. Right? We write in English, obviously. And we would like sweat over certain words and, and certain phrases and that to get them exactly right. You know, we have in chapter two of the book what we call this 4E model, four different realms of experience of entertainment, educational, escapist, and aesthetic. And in the, throughout the rest of the book, if you see four different examples being given, they're going to be one of each of those right? Four different words. And they'll be there because we sweated through, okay, let's hit all four of these. What are the right words here? And things like that. And then, of course, it's been translated into like 15 different languages. And then you have no control whatsoever over what words they choose. And, and I've had people tell me, hey, this translation is great. This translation is lousy and there's nothing you can do about it. But in English, it is very precise. You mentioned how the reactions of people to your concept change. But how did your thinking change? Okay. So this will sound arrogant or hubistic, but we did not get anything wrong in the experience economy. <laughs> Everything we said 20 years ago is right, is correct. Now, I'll say that's not true of my first book. My first book on mass customization that came out in 1993, I got stuff wrong. I got a, you know, some really big stuff wrong. So it's not that I'm not willing to admit it if I did. <laughs> but when we looked at updating, it's like, yeah, everything is right. Now, there are company examples that failed. There are particular examples that don't work because anytime you have one of these fundamental shifts in the very fabric of the economy, you're going to get a lot of innovation and a lot of innovation fails. A lot of companies are not going to make it. But then also we've extended it. We know so much more about it today, have so many more frameworks around it. You know, all the stuff in authenticity is really about experiences. You may have heard the term of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, about how all the characters interrelate and everything. That's the way it is with all our ideas. All our ideas interrelate. They're part of one thought universe, and we've continued to extend that over years. One of the sort of the capstone things I'd like to do before I die is to write the book again, but start from scratch. Yeah. You know, don't depend on anything. One, But here's how we talk about today. Here's what we know about today. Bring in one chapter on concepts from authenticity. Bring in another chapter of my book, Infinite Possibility, Creating Customer Value in the Digital Frontier, which I actually co-wrote with Kim Korn. He helped me out with those ideas. Bring in one chapter on that and how you fuse the real and the virtual. Bring in things that we've written in articles but have never published in the book. You know, obviously, we don't want the book to go from this big to this big, <laughs> but instead, let's winnow down to the essences of it. Let's get rid of things that we really don't talk about. It's still there. People want to go back and find that level of detail, but let's get it a little higher level, but broader in terms of what's going on. So that's my goal in the next five or 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then I can die. <laughs> <laughs> don't. <laughs> don't write okay, this book. <laughs> hey, I right, right. Are these ideas interrelated like a mesh, or there is a, something central that binds them somehow together? <laughs> well, I always say that mass customization is the DNA of the experience economy. It's how I discovered it back in 1993 or 1994, when I often said that mass customizing a good 
turn it into a service. If you design a good that's exactly for a person, what they need, you help them define the physical thing that they want, then you make it, then you deliver it to them individually on demand, well, then it's a service. And then discovered, well, what happens when you mass customize a service? If you design a service that's so appropriate for this particular person, exactly what they need at this moment in time, then you can't help but make them go wow and turn it into a memorable event, turn it into an experience. So that's at the DNA there. But more precisely, what the true core concept at the center of it all is, is individualization. That it's about individualization. It's about getting more and more to exactly what people want. It's about getting more and more inside of them. You know, if you think about it, commodities are these arm's length things that we hardly ever touch and feel anymore. You know, salt and pepper is sort of the closest we get to commodities. Uh, goods are physical things that we own, like our clothing, cars, like and houses, and so forth. Although increasingly we don't own them, we access them or as a service and experience. And then uh, services or activities that are performed on our objects, like cleaning our clothes or changing the oil in our car, or on ourselves, like cutting our hair or doing our manicure and so forth. But experiences, for the first time, reach inside of people. Commodities, good services exist outside of people. They get closer and closer, but experiences reach inside of people. They are individual. They're inherently personal uh, in that way, that the experience happens inside of us in reaction to the events that are staged in front of us. And then we haven't talked about it here, but I'm sure we did on the first show about transformations, about the fifth and final economic offering, where when you customize an experience, when you design an experience that's so appropriate for a particular person, then you can't help turn into what we often call a life-transforming experience, an experience that changes us in some way. And so transformations are the fifth and final economic offering in this progression of economic value. And transformations change us from the inside out. So experiences inside of us, but a set of experiences that can actually change us. We are the, all the product of our experiences. And that's as individual as you can get, as to help change who someone is to help them achieve their aspirations. I have to ask about this. What was one of the mistakes in mass customization? <laughs> oh, well, the very definition of it. The very <laughs> definition of it. So the definition I gave to mass customization back then was Variety and customization through flexibility and quick responsiveness, right? That was the definition. And the problem is variety is, in fact, not the same as customization. What I learned later is the variety is the last-ditch hopes of a mass producer to still produce something in advance of what people actually want and the hope that they will choose it. And it's still putting things in inventory. It's not done on demand. It's not done for the individual customer. Right. So for customization, you have to put the customer into customization. If the customer, it's not done on demand for this individual customer, then it's not true customization, much less mass customization. So that's the biggest thing. And, <laughs> and that's the very definition. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> so what did you do with this definition? Like, you know, you kind of leaves on, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now we got a very simple forward definition efficiently serving customers uniquely, mm -hmm. right? That's what it is, that you're efficient. That's the mass part. You're serving customers, right? The individual on demand, and you're doing uniquely to them as an individual. Wait up, but when I think about, let's say, Disney, a theme park, it is not tailored to every single person who gets through the gates, right? You're exactly right. It's a big, in fact, I did a lot of work with Disney World Uh, Walt Disney World back in the 2000s, early to mid 2000s. And it's the point I kept drilling into them is that it's a mass experience. And I said, it's a great experience. It's the best experience in the world. It is the happiest place on earth. I'll grant that, right? As they say. But I said, eventually, you're going to have to customize that experience. You're going to have to get down to the individual. And I didn't find this out till years later, but it actually was one of the impetus impeti <laughs> to um, create the magic band uh -huh. right so the magic band that walt disney did was the first movement in that direction to be able to know who the individual is allow them to you know individually open the room pay for things and they want to get to the point where the characters would recognize you based off of your magic band would be able to react you know and say like snow white what you saw earlier snow white told me x about you and and that sort of thing And they've never quite fully gotten there, but they are doing more customization. The apps that they have allow for more customization as well. But one of the guys that left there 
and this will relate directly to our innovation conversation, one of the guys who helped lead the Magic Band, in fact, uh, John Paget is his name. He did a tweet today because today, so this, I don't know when you're going to put this out, but people will be able to know that it's uh, February 28th today because today it's in the papers that Bob Iger announced that he's stepping down as CEO of the Walt Disney Company. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he's still going to be chairman. He's still going to focus on the future, but they made the head of parks and resorts. They moved him up to be uh, CEO of the company. And John Pageant, who again helped do the Magic Band, had a tweet where he talked about the billion dollar bet. And he said that Robert Iger told him, I said, well, if I gave you more money, would you be able to get this done more quickly? All right. That's how important they thought of it once they, they got it going. But John told me he never could get everything that he wanted there, everything that we talked about in this work that I did with them, again, you know, now over 15 years ago. So he joined Carnival Corporation. And here is a Greenfield. He joined them to do that. And one of the things I love, you know, I promote the title chief experience officer, that you should have somebody who is responsible for your experiences, unless you're at Disney, because everybody is, is an experience officer. But in many companies, you need that focus. You do chief experience officer. But he took as his title at Carnival, Chief Experience and Innovation Officer. And because of that focus on innovation, it was a recognizing that we need to innovate in experiences. Now, he's also innovating in products and services, in goods and services. He's doing that as well, but it's all in service of the guest experience. And that's what he's really focused on. So what he took is, instead of creating a wristband, what he created actually is a uh, medallion. This ocean medallion, it's an IoT device about the size of a large coin. And he gives every guest the ocean medallion before they arrive on the cruise. Right? He's starting with the Princess Cruise brand. They're going to fill it out this year, and then they'll start to move to other brands under Carnival. But you go online. When you book your cruise, they ask you to upload your passport, take an image or scan it in so that they know that it's valid. And then they sort of have this check mark that says, okay, it's ocean ready. And they ask you for the preferences of what you'd like to do in the cruise. So before you ever get there, you have this customized itinerary for you and your family of what you'd like to do. But then they learn more and more about you. And they can then send you personal experience invitations because you're carrying around this uh, ocean medallion, whether it's in your pocket, on your wrist, on a watch, or on a pendant around your neck. It can, of course, open your stateroom door where they greet you electronically by name. It can, of course, pay for anything that you want in there, but it is your identifier on the cruise. But they learn more and more about you over time to, again, send these personal experience invitations to allow you to better and better customize that experience. And if you go on a second cruise, it gets even better. And a third cruise, even better than that, because it's creating this learning relationship with you. And this is, you know, it's revolutionizing the cruise industry and it's going to move to more and more industries as well. One of the amazing things is they can even know things like when you're on the pool deck with your kids, your favorite drink is an iced tea with no lemon. But when you're in the bar with your buddies, it's a mojito. And when you're in the restaurant with your spouse, it's a glass of Shiraz. Hmm. Right? Understanding the context of where I am and what I'm doing says I'm going to want different things from Carnival. So it's just a, a great, great system. It's doing most everything I'm talking about, about mass customizing the goods and services to yield that wonderful experience. Where would be the place for serendipity in this? <laughs> I, funny, I, I have gotten that question for 25 years. And the basic answer is you program in serendipity. <laughs> right? You can program in serendipity. The classic case that where I first got it was thinking about mass customized newspapers, which is basically, if you think about it, is what Facebook is, right? Your news feed, right? It's mass customized. It's done. Everybody gets a different one. It's designed for you. But there isn't a heck of a lot of serendipity in there. The only thing that you might think of that way is advertisers are pushing things at you, whether they really know you want or not. They think you will, but they don't know that this is something you're going to want. But instead, you know, think about it this way. If I had a mass customized news feed, I would say, give me today the article that architects found most interesting yesterday or that artists did, or that Tom Peters did, you know, to mention that, you know, what, you know, let me see what he's reading and spark my feed that's still customized to me, but now it's got these things that are out there. It's the same thing with music, right? You know, you get Spotify, you can get music stations basically that are customized very tightly to you, but you ought to have a dial that allows you to program from zero to maybe 50% serendipity. 
And so that you start to do and put in things that we're not for sure you're going to like. It's more out there from what you're listening to, but we put it in there and then see how you react to it. So you don't get in this tiny little bubble. There is a danger of being in a bubble that is only things that we know that you want. And so, you know, the answer is basically to program in serendipity. So obviously the topic of psychographics is a, something that comes to mind with these kind of concepts. And you guys, of all people in the world, have seen the consequences of using psychographics in such a powerful way. And I'm curious, how do you see this profiling being something that's, on the one hand, really powerful, but on the other hand, a little bit dangerous? Well, the key is it has to be in service to the individual customer, not in service to your advertiser or to whatever you're pushing. You know, what I tell clients is don't ask a customer for any piece of information or track any piece of information or store any piece of information that you don't intend to use to benefit that customer. And a better targeted ad is not a benefit to that customer. (laughs) And what research and practice, as with the Ocean Medallion, 99.5% of the people say, yes, I'll take the medallion. Even though it's tracking everywhere you go on the ship. Right, even though it knows everything that you did on the ship, you know, because they see the value, they see the direct value of it. And that's what you need to do. You need to provide direct value for the information that you're tracking. Obviously, you got to keep it secure so it doesn't get out into the wild. And obviously, you've got to not sell it to other people. Your customers are the ones that are paying you money. And here's the original sin of Facebook and Google is that who should be their customers, their members actually is who they should be, are not paying them. It's the advertisers that are paying them. And that means the people using their services and experiences are not the customers, they're the product that is being sold to the advertisers. So that's a very corrosive model. That's why they get into problems with privacy and everything because they're always pushing the window in order to make more money off of their users. Instead, the users should be their customers. They should be paying them a membership fee, as is the case with Amazon. You know, with Amazon Prime, you're paying over $100 membership fee every year to belong so that you know that everybody is, in fact, a customer and you're trying to do things that benefit them. That's the customer obsession that Jeff Bezos talks about all the time. So you mentioned that your clients ask you about customization. What are other things that your clients ask you about? in terms of bringing experiences as they're offering on the market? Um, One of the big questions they ask about that I'm, because I have a very strong opinion on, is charging admission. That if you create a great experience, you should charge admission. That economically, it's not an experience without charging for time. You know, think about it this way, that you are what you charge for. And if you charge for undifferentiated stuff, you're in the commodities business. If you charge for tangible things, you're in the goods business. If you charge for the activities your people perform, you're in the services business. But you're economically in the experience business if and only if you charge for time, for the time customers spend with you, because that's what they value, that they want time well spent with an experience. And so what happens in any one of these economic shifts is that companies give away the next level of value in order to better sell what they have today. So Starbucks, for example, doesn't charge for time. They could, I think, charge a membership fee, but they don't charge for time. They give away the experience to better sell the coffee and other products that they have in there. But eventually, you have to align what you charge for with what your customers value. And that, is, again, is charging for the time. And so there are anti-cafes, they're called. One of my favorite is Zifferblatt Cafe, that means wall clock in Russian, that started in Moscow. And there are some sort of franchises in the UK, and then there are many others around the world that do, in fact, charge for time. They charge you in the UK, it's about 8 pence per minute or about 12 US cents per minute for the time that you spend there. And then the coffee's free, right? They completely flipped the model. You know, you're not getting the same frou-frou drink that you're going to get at Starbucks, but you're making your own with a machine, but then you're paying for the time you spend there, whether it's socializing with friends, playing games, reading, working, napping, just getting a respite from the day, whatever it might be. And eventually, that's what we need to happen. And a lot of companies uh, push back on that because they're afraid, again, the risk, afraid of going out there. And I just give them example after example. When we wrote that in the original edition, the experience economy, we had a couple of like pseudo examples of it. 
But we said, you know, it's probably the most futurist we are. We said retailers in the future would charge emission. Restaurants would charge emission. All these different manufacturers will charge emission. And that's proven the case. There are scores, there are hundreds of examples now of companies charging emission in places you never thought possible. And that's just going to accelerate. Airport Lodge comes to mind as a very yeah, obvious yeah. one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And uh, in the new preview to the book, when we talk about charging emission, one of the concepts we add is the money value of time, right? Or MVT, the money value of time is how much money are people spending per amount of time that they spend with you? And if you think about it, uh, I'll use US dollars here, but uh, if you go to a movie, you have about a two hour experience, you spend around $12 for that movie, that works out to exactly 10 cents per minute. So that's a good experience, 10 cents per minute. But if you go to Walt Disney World or to Disneyland, you're on the order of 20 cents per minute. That's a great experience. But what we've seen is that it recently, you can go beyond that. You go to escape rooms, which I think were invented in Poland, if I remember right. In Romania. In Romania? Yeah. Okay. Um, if you go to newfangled Instagrammable places like the Museum of Ice Cream or the Rosé Mansion or Candatopia and all of those, and escape rooms, you're paying 40 or 50 cents per minute. So one of the ways you, because you can't, again, time is limited. You can only get so much of a customer's time, but how do I greatly increase my money value of time by creating an experience that's worth more money Mm -hmm. and get a higher dollar per minute from each customer. And that's what the battle is going to be in the now and into the future and experience staging. Do you think it will be culture dependent as well? I mean, what I understand about American culture is that in US you are used to physically pay money for more things than in other parts of the world. Yeah, that's probably true. It's an area where I think the entire world to catch up. The number of theme parks in China dwarf what it is in the US now because of the growth over there. I can't believe, I don't know for a fact, but I can't believe that there aren't emission feed experiences in every country in the world, whether it's a museum, whether it's a movie house and, and so forth. But the classically think of sporting events, concerts, plays, movies, all of these are mission feed experiences. People recognize that. They recognize these as experiences. And so charging admission sends a signal that this is an experience worth having. And so you're going to see it more and more around the world, even if customers aren't as used to doing that as they are in the US. On the other hand, when you look at the experience that Umka Bank offers, it's mm-hmm. for free. So it, they yes. earn money on their services, but they offer an experience as a freemium, really, right? Right. That is the way most companies do it. They give away the experience to better sell what they have today. Mm -hmm. You know, but 50 years from now, that may not cut it. If they don't charge for it, they'll be commoditized as an experience. Okay. Because people won't value it. So how much can this be worth if it's free? (laughs) So what would be the most innovative experience that you've seen Well, I I would go back to the Carnival Ocean Medallion as the most innovative. I mean, obviously, you're using a lot of technology, but the technology is in service to the guest experience. And one of the great things it does is actually freeze the Carnival employees, freeze the workers to better uh, serve their customers, to better create that direct interaction with them because the technology is taking off a load of some of what they're doing and making things more efficient. It is, again, mass customized in the uh, pursuit of that elevated, as John uh, always likes to talk, the elevated customer experience or the guest experience. So we wholeheartedly recommend the new edition of the experience economy. But if you were to recommend a book which is about innovation in experience, what would it be? Oh, a book about uh, innovation and experience. I'd have to look around. That, that whole bookshelf here is uh, <laughs> all my experiences book, you know, all the way from top to bottom. And uh, For the and people who cannot words. see, Joe is pointing know, at least six it. shelves. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I have one, two, three, four, five, six on both sides of my office, you know, and that. And, and so, but that's my experience uh, one. I've just recently reorganized it. I'm actually going to be Uh, moving in the not-too-distant future. And so I'm uh, going through all my books, seeing which ones I want to keep. So I will mention uh, this one that just came out called Designing Experiences 
by Bob Rossman and Matt Dearden. Matt's a friend of mine. He's come to our Think About event. And uh, I wrote the forward to the book, so I'm biased, right, in that sense. And it is also very uh, recent. But he does really talk about how to understand experiences and give you a toolkit for design thinking around experiences and putting things together. There's a wonderful model in there of experience types that I think is very good because he talks about there are, and we don't talk about what he calls ordinary experiences. These are the things that really aren't memorable, but the things that we do every day that we have. But then what takes it to take that ordinary into extraordinary, to take the ordinary into creating a memorable experience, and then even a meaningful experience, which we relate a little bit to with our authenticity stuff, and then finally a transformative experience, which we talk about with transformations. And so that meaningful is sort of that half step in between, which I think is very good. I love, we talked about Paul and Paul's book on gamification and tourism another great book. It's probably it's one of the best books you'll find on tourism and one of the best books you find on gamification. And they're all together in, <laughs> in, in one book. Yeah. So I also want to suggest uh, this book, which is The Age of uh-huh. Experiences, Harnessing Happiness to Build a New Economy by Benjamin Honeycutt, professor I know in Iowa. And I also wrote the forward to this book. <laughs> but I didn't say this one first because you talked about for designing experience. But this is a great book for understanding what's going on in what he calls this age of experience and providing a great historical perspective, particularly around time. And again, time is the currency of experiences. It's a key thing. And he talks about the leisure movement and how it is sort of being finally come to fruition with the experience economy as providing these places where people do want to have leisure. And so he's sort of predicting that we will, in fact, cut down on work that will look for ways to cut down and work, spend less time there because there now are all these great experiences that we can talk about. And there are some great things on experience design as well in the book. So I highly recommend that. Joe, thank you so very much for this conversation. As usually, super interesting and going too fast. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that this is not the last one. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com.